So if you would, uh, as the children head to Children's Church, if you would pull out whatever form of Bible you're using and turn with me to Ephesians 2, uh, verses 11 through 22, we are continuing our fall series in Ephesians, and I will say that I titled this sermon uh, before I actually wrote it, and uh, when you sit down to write sermons, they come out a little different than sometimes you think. Uh, so we're still going to get to the gospel family, but we're going to have to wait to the very end to get to it. You know, this, uh, as Dr. Silvernell prayed, this is um, a time in our country where we see a lot of conflict. And, uh, and we see a lot of sort of tensions in our, in our society. And sometimes we think that those tensions are outside of the church, and that's just really untrue. Uh, the, a lot of the, 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 the conflicts and the divisions and just the, the hard things that we see in society are found in the church just in a different form, or we just cover it up a little bit better than everybody else does. And so Paul, in this, sec- in this passage, is going to really get at some of these sort of conflicts and problems. So if you would read with me in uh, Ephesians 2, uh, verses 11 through 22. Therefore, remember that at one time, you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace." and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who are far off, and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure, being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Let us pray. Father in heaven, your your word is life to us, and we need you to speak to us today and teach us from your word. Lord, I ask that you would be with me, that you would speak through me, and that this passage would, would touch not only the hearts of those in this room, but also me. For Lord, we, we need you to speak to us, and so be with us now. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So, uh, I want to talk about rivalries, particularly in sports. Uh, the football seasons have started, uh, baseball season is sort of winding down, hockey season is about to start up, right? But there are really two main rivalries when it comes to professional football that get talked about in this area. There's Steelers and Ravens, mostly because of our proximity to, to Baltimore, and of course the Steelers because of the unrelenting parade of Dave Dorst's Steelers <laughs> gear, right? And the other rivalry is 
Washington Redskins, of course, versus basically anybody in the NFC East, right? <laughs> particularly the Cowboys, right? Just particularly the Cowboys. And these rivalries can get pretty heated and pretty nasty, and the trash talk that flies around is particularly brutal, right? But I don't want to talk so much about the rivalries themselves, but the players that end up end up having to play on both sides of this rivalry because of you know the business side of things. And I, I just really wonder, especially in those sort of nasty rivalries, what it must be like for these professional players to have to switch sides. You're used to like you used to hate one team. Everything about your year builds up to that rivalry game, and then suddenly you're on the other side. Imagine walking into the locker room that first time after switching sides. I mean, talk about awkward, right? You've talked smack about these people, you've told like, the media terrible things about your, your opponents, and now you have to face them. And to top it off, you're being asked to lay down your body and to sacrifice for this group of guys that used to be your arch nemesis. How do you tear down those old walls that separated you and end up as one team? And that's the problem that the Christian Jews and the Christian Gentiles had when they came into this newfangled thing called the church. And Paul addresses all of this in this passage, and this is part two of his treatise on the gospel. Remember that this passage comes hot on the heels of last week's passage, obviously. Paul has just finished talking about how both Jews and Gentiles um, needed salvation by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. As Dr. Silvernail uh, said last week, Paul took them from the deepest depths to the highest peaks to show them what Christ has done for them. And he has called them to live according to this new identity as Christians. And not surprisingly, Paul thinks that we understand things better when we have concrete examples, right? And so Paul begins to unpack how the gospel that he has just finished talking about impacts our interpersonal relationships. He dealt with the vertical, our, our reconciliation with God, and now he's dealing and addressing the horizontal, our problems with each other. To help guide us, we're, we're going to be using, not surprisingly, Paul's structure. It's always good to sort of rip off what Paul, Paul uses. So, um, not surprisingly, it also mirrors last week's passage, uh, passage structure as well. And so in verses 11 through 12, we get a picture of what you, meaning Gentiles, once were. Then in verses 13 to 18, we see what Christ has done to reunite us. And finally, in verses 19 through 22, we find out what we are now and what we are becoming. So let's jump right in. Verses 11 through 12, what you once were. Therefore, remember that at one time, you Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. And here, Paul is talking about what you once were. Remember that at one time, you Gentiles... Paul wanted the Gentiles to remember where they came from, the depths of darkness. And so this is where Paul talks about the walls, the rivalry hate, if you will, between Jews and Gentiles. And he wants to talk about the brokenness between people, the disunity, the hostility, all the bad stuff. And so we take a closer look at the relationship 
um, between Jews and Gentiles, what's interesting is that the, the division isn't racial. We often think of Jews and Gentiles being a racial division, but it's not. To be sure, it sort of generally ran along those lines, but it's actually spiritual and moral. The division is spiritual and moral in character. The dividing line that separated us from the dreaded them was whether or not you had the sign of the covenant. In verse 11 is Paul's acknowledgement that the Gentiles were called, basically called names by the Jews. To call somebody the uncircumcision or to call them a Gentile was essentially to use what we would consider a racial slur today. Just think of all the racial slurs. And that's basically what the Jews are doing when they call somebody a Gentile. It carried so much more than just an identifier. It communicated hostility, contempt. It can, it just, you're just looking down upon these people. And John Stott noted in his commentary that the hostility that the Jews had for the Gentiles was remarkable. I mean, Jews absolutely hated Gentiles. Another theologian, William Barclay, said that there was an immense contempt for the Gentile, and Jews believed that Gentiles, get this, were created for the sole purpose of fueling the fires of hell. I mean, that's just rough, right? I mean, sole purpose of fueling the fires of hell. And to sort of make it a little bit more concrete than that, if a Jewish man and a, uh, or a Jewish man or a Jewish woman married a Gentile, the Jewish family would conduct a funeral for the Jewish person. Like, think about that. Like, you're getting married, it's the best day of your life, and your family is conducting a funeral for you. I mean, the level of contempt, the level of hostility, the level of hatred is just off the charts. And so most of us haven't encountered that kind of hate directed towards us, but think about it. If we lived in the first century ancient Near East, almost every single one of us would have been labeled as a Gentile and treated as such. This is religious and, in, and spiritual elitism at its, at its worst. And Paul just continues on with the bad news. In verse 12, Paul just seems to continue to pile on. Gentiles were without Christ, without a people or a state, and they had no promises to hang on to. Gentiles, and we with them, were saviorless, stateless, friendless, and godless. They and we had no one and nothing to cling to. And so Paul rightly says that they had no hope and were without God in the world. It's a pretty bleak picture. It's what sin does. It poisons literally every single one of our connections. We don't have a right relationship with God. We don't have a right relationship with the creation. And we certainly don't have a right relationship with each other. But thankfully, Paul continues. Paul doesn't leave us there. because Christ, He doesn't leave us there because Christ is not content to leave us there. Wallowing in our misery without hope or God. No, after a bleak picture... Paul again gives us hope with two little words. Last week it was, but God. Right? It was, but God in verse 4. And this week it is, but now. You once were, fill in the blank, you know, friendless, stateless, helpless, godless, but now you are none of those things. And so in verses 13 to 18, we get what Christ has done. But now, 
In Christ Jesus, you who are once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in, in place of the two so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came near and preached peace to those who were far off and uh, pre- peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. And so Christ has brought those who are far off and th- those that were outcasts and rejects, he's brought them near. And so I was lucky to have this passage assigned to me because... This is the passage we went over at Junior High Moshnik and Senior High Moshnik, so I've actually heard two sermons on this, and then also, uh, actually, the, the, week, the Sunday after I, I got, got the passage assignment, when I was at my previous church, the senior pastor also preached on this passage, right? So I'm just going to sort of shamelessly steal some of the illustrations from them. Um, so w- this one's from uh, middle school, middle school Moshnik, um, and this is from a guy by the name of Dwayne Davis. He's a church planner down in, in North Carolina. But so uh, if I picked one of you guys way in the back left, and you're a Gentile, if I picked one of you guys right up here in the front right, and you're a Jew, you would be able to see the great distance between them and the number of barriers between them. A lot of people, a lot of chairs, a lot of space, right? But if I were to then say, hey, you're one with me, so stand up, walk down here, and you know, hold my hand, or better yet, give me a hug, they would both have to stand up, they'd both have to walk down here, and they'd both end up at the same place. They'd end up at me, right? And sure, one walked farther than the other, but they'd end up in the same place. And so they're both here right next to me. And what's happened to the distance and the barriers that have come between them? Well, it's shrunk down, and they're, if they're holding on to me, then they're united and connected to each other in a way that they weren't before. And this is how this unity works. When we are united to Christ, we are united to all those that are also united to Christ. But it all hinges on the person calling both sides to him, the one that unites them. And thankfully, that's not me, right? Thankfully, that's not me. It's Jesus that does this, of course. In this way, Jesus is our peace. He is the one who creates peace between those united to him. But, create, but peace isn't simply created by drawing two groups of people near to Christ. Even if he calls them to himself, there are still barriers and distinctions that form hierarchies that produce contempt and hatred. So Christ has to do something about the walls. And so he does. And he's broken down the dividing wall of hostility in verse 14. And so that begs the question, what's this dividing wall of hostility? A lot of theologians would say that the dividing wall that Paul has in mind is the physical wall in the temple building that separated the court of the Gentiles from the rest of the temple. Back in the first century, and really dating back to the tabernacle, and all the temples since then, Gentiles were physically barred from entering that sacred and holy space. And so in this sense, Christ is destroying the need for that wall. With his death and resurrection, he reminds everyone that no one comes to the Father except through him. And everybody is in the same boat. And while I think that sense is certainly present, I think it's better to think of the dividing wall as the law. 
Remember that the law of commandments expressed in ordinances in verse 15 refers to that ceremonial law and the dietary restrictions and customs that set Jews apart from Gentiles. And so it's those restrictions and customs that were the source of the Jews' haughty spiritual elitism. It's because of those restrictions and customs that the Gentiles are not allowed, allowed in. And the law was the foundational reason for the separation and distinction. And so if that law and those ordinances are abolished, what distinguishes Jew from Gentile? Well, nothing does. And since Christ came and fulfilled the law completely by living the perfect life without sin and paying for the sins of his people on the cross, everything is fulfilled. Nothing is left to do. It is that righteous life and humble death that abolishes its requirements, not because they're not good, but because they're done and complete. And so instead of two groups, Jews and Gentiles, you have a new one, which is Christians. Well, great, we're getting someplace, but we're not quite there yet. So we've been brought near, the dividing wall has been broken down, and there's supposed to be peace. We, we know how well that goes, right? You bring people together, you tell them that they're all the same, great. There's still a problem. These people still don't like each other. There's still the hostility that's left. And to revisit our opening illustration, you can be part of the team, but you're not a part of the brotherhood or the family. Right? You're still regarded as a second-class citizen to be sort of viewed with suspicion and you know, caution. But Christ does not want Jews to grudgingly tolerate Gentiles in his kingdom. He wants them to be one in every respect. And so we get this verse on reconciliation to God. Well, what does, reconciliation, what does reconciling us both to God in one body through the cross do? What does it do? Well, we end up having to realize that Paul puts Jews and Gentiles alike in the same boat. They both desperately need salvation. If we backtrack to Ephesians 2.3, both of us were living in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature, nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. Paul was putting an end to the spiritual elitism and snobbery of the Jews because he said, you both need to be reconciled to God. And what's more is that since both are reconciled to the Father, to the Father in one body, the Jews can't even say that they don't need as much salvation as the, Jew, as the Gentiles. Yeah, sure, you had to walk a long way, but I had to walk less. They can't even say that because they're, they're reconciled in one body. For all of their upbeatiness and all the shade that they threw at the Gentiles for being outside the covenant, the Jews need the exact same salvation as the people that they think that are worse than the scum of the earth. It's really hard to be elitist, snobby, and self-righteous when you realize you're right in the same boat, that your sin doesn't put you in any better position than theirs, and that their sin doesn't condemn them any more than yours condemns you. And so the hostility dies. Verses 17 to 18 highlight this oneness in need. We both need the same thing preached to us, and we both need the same access to the Father through the same Spirit of Christ. Now, if you're sitting there thinking, well, this is unrealistic. How can there not be any hostility? That doesn't take into account the fact that conflict is, being, is a part of being human. 
You don't know what you're talking about. Paul seems way too optimistic. Well, I beg to differ. For all the conflict that we have, ISIS, presidential elections, terrorists, you know, definitely the race problems that we saw in Ferguson and all the various shootings and, and now in Charlotte, for all the conflict that we have and how inescapable and inevitable it seems, conflict, division, and disunity are at their core unnatural. And we know this because it's a product of the fall. It's a part of the curse. If we look back at the before and after pictures, before, at, before Adam and Eve were perfectly united in one accord. They had an intimacy and an openness that is almost unthinkable today. They were in such harmony that they, de that they didn't even need clothes, which are just actual physical dividing walls between people. And so when they sin in Genesis 3, not only did they wreck their relationship with God, they also wrecked their relationship with each other. The text in Genesis is very clear. When they sin, their first inclination is to cover themselves up, to put walls, physical, literal walls between themselves. And so our goal is to have that kind of pre-fall, pre-fall, uh, pre conflict-free, wall-free relationship. We are made to be known and known completely. The very, like, uh, when we look at the very people that sort of push everyone away and build impenetrable hearts around, uh, impenetrable walls around their hearts, they show us that we were made to be in relationship with people, like a real perfect relationship, because we yearn for peace with one another, to be in relationship. We are literally miserable when we are isolated. This is why isolation in prisons works so well, because they are literally depriving you of something that is essential to your character. We need people. As introverted as you may be, you still need people. As extroverted you, as, extroverted as you may be, you certainly know that you need people. But to get back to the text, Christ is reconciling us to each other and to God. And the word reconciling is a perfect word to use here because of its construction. The word reconcile has its root in, in the Latin, and the prefix re means again, of course. And the base word conciliare means to bring together. And so we are being brought back together. It presupposes an initial unity that has been broken and is now being repaired. So what was broken at the fall in Genesis 3 is being repaired. The dividing walls are broken down as we are brought back together in full and complete relationship. That is what Christ has done for us. Well, this restoration and reconciliation has big implications for Christians at Ephesus and has big implications for us. Who we are has to change to fit who we are now. Just as players have to adjust be to being on a new team, think of, thinking of themselves not in terms of their old team, but in terms of their new team, we too have to change how we live according to our new reality. And so there are two big questions that Paul has to answer. Who are we now in light of what Christ has done for us? And two, what are we being made into? What's that final goal? And so starting in verse 19, so then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are 
fellow citizens with saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. So what's our new identity? Two things, fellow citizens and family members. First, we are fellow citizens. We are no longer alienated. We are no longer outside of the covenant. And so we are no longer strangers and foreigners. We are now in, and we belong. Citizenship is actually a legal term. It means that a person has been legally recognized to have pledged allegiance to and is a part of a nation. Remember how we were stateless? Well, no more. But we are also members of the household of God, and this is huge. The people that the Jews had the most contempt and hatred for are now their brothers and sisters in Christ. And practically speaking, that's a lot to ask, right? You spent a lifetime hating someone. It's hard to change. It's certainly not going to happen overnight, and it's still going to be hard after years. But there will be times, and, and there will be times in the church where sinful people sin against each other, and those sins are real and they hurt. But yet... Paul doesn't seem to consider sort of a break in unity. He doesn't even seem to like mention it at all, just how hard this is going to be. And so when the going gets tough, when you're at your wit's end, because the other person is just too annoying, what do you end up coming back to? You have to come back to the fact that our unity with each other is built on nothing less than Christ himself and the apostles. You have to come back to that foundation. Christ is the cornerstone. We've, we've sung that. We're going to sing that. The, one that. the one that all the other parts of the building are built off. That's what the cornerstone is. And so when the going gets tough in the church, we look to Jesus. Well, that seems pretty obvious. And when we go back and, and look at this passage, we see that the people that are really, really annoying us have been deemed precious by the Lord. The Lord has bought them with the precious blood of our own Savior. He loves them just as much as he loves me. But that's not all. What's the final goal? What, have we been, what are we being made into? We are growing into a holy temple, a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. We're not there yet. There's still work to be done. But in the end, but the end is that we experience God's presence fully and richly. Now, if you haven't been listening, listen up. Students, I know sometimes it's hard to listen through a long sermon, but listen up. We need the church. We need the body of believers. We need them to experience God's presence fully and richly. We certainly have access to the Father through Christ, but we miss so much when we are outside of the local body of Christ, and, and we miss his presence when the church is gathered together in his name. And it's this idea of being built together to become a dwelling place for God by the Spirit that really cements the importance of the church. Later on in, in Ephesians, in, in chapter 4, verses 15, verse 15, Paul will remind us, we are, grow, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, when each part is working properly, so you need every part, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. The church 
needs all of its parts, every single last one of them. And this has really big implications for the ways that Jews looked upon Gentiles, and it has big implications for the way that we look at people in the church that aren't like us, or are just more work to be around. Let me ask you something. Do you see the people that are annoying, that are awkward, that are hard to be around, and demanding as people that are vital to your spiritual health? Do you see them as integral parts to you experiencing the fullness of God's presence in your life? If you're like me, mo the answer is most likely not. If you're like me, more, than, more often than not, I just try to avoid these people. Um, I justify my erecting barriers between me and them by saying things like, you know, I can just take them in small doses. Like, I can only take them in small doses. Or, I just don't get him. He's just way too weird. Or, I just can't handle right, that right now. I've got too much on my plate as is. But that's not grace. That's not the unity that we're called to. Grace is radically more than putting up with people in small doses or holding the ones that are harder and more work at arm's length. That stuff doesn't reflect the fact that each Christian has been bought by the blood of Christ. That stuff doesn't reflect that each Christian is the brother or sister in Christ. We were talking about this at Majnik um, with the, the middle school students, and the topic of younger siblings that are really annoying came up. And, um, and after, after our discussion, I actually asked one of them, do you ever wish that your younger siblings weren't a part of your family? It should just be easier, it'd be less annoying. And I was actually really surprised by the answer that I got. He said no, and I asked why. And he said, their position in the family has nothing to do with how annoying they are. He was able to see past the present cost of loving them to the foundational truth that they were family. It doesn't matter what they do. I still love them no matter what. That's grace. Grace is the lavishing of love upon someone that doesn't deserve it, upon someone who in fact deserves the exact opposite. And so I'll end with paraphrasing something that the, the Majnik speakers said. He said that if we don't love the unlovely, embrace the annoying, and show grace to the worst of people in our churches, to forgive them over and over again for the same mistakes that you've told them a hundred times hurt you and are bad for them. If we don't do that, we will never understand what it's like for God to put up with us. Think about that. We get a picture of what Christ has done and continues to do for us when we love the unlovely. We understand just what the gospel is when we forgive our friends for the millionth time for that thing that you've told them a hundred times hurt you. We not only see Christ's gospel when we forgive and love others, but we see Christ exhibited to us when we're the ones being annoying and hard to love. If we show each other this radical kind of grace, the grace that Christ showed us, we will see the church grow into the holy temple of God, a dwelling place for him with his people. 
Let's pray silently for a moment, and then I'll close our time in the Word. Father, you are amazing. You have taken the outcast and the snob and the uppity and the elitist, and you have disarmed us all. You've made us one in you. Lord, we need to hear your word and understand that in our very hearts we rebel against you. Lord, we need uh, to see just how much grace you have given us. And Lord, would you give us the strength to bear with those that are hard to live with, that we might see you. Lord, would you change our hearts? Would you change us to make us eager to love the unlovely as you have loved us? And so, Lord, be with us now. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.